Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Well, everyone, if you can hear me, Chris, give me a quick nod before we get started with some of our questions. How are you today, sir? Good to go. Doing well. Thank you. Excellent. I think we're on. So anyway, long story short, thanks for coming again. And everyone, thank you for tuning in to Agents of Change. I'm your host here, Dr. Jeff Zarnick, Associate Dean with the Department of Criminal Justice and Social Sciences here at Southern New Hampshire University Global. And once again, we are honored and blessed to be with Dr. Matthews, who's doing some phenomenal work with and for his students, but also with people who have been incarcerated and giving them a second chance through academic, uh, ed- for, through education. So anyway, back to our, back to our topic at hand. What, you've, what work you've been doing Okay. What, what are some of the deficits? I know we alluded to this last time, but I want to kind of follow up on this, if you don't mind. Um, what are some of those educational deficits? You've, you're dealing with people with some acumen prowess. They're smart people. But mm-hmm. what happened prior to prison relative to educational opportunity? Um, it could fall under, say, a lack, of, a lack of equity or whatever it may be. What, in your expert opinion, what's happening? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. From my vantage point and with the work that I've been doing thus far with Project AIM, what I've come to realize is that the learners that are incarcerated previously, they just were not provided the opportunity to excel. So they were placed in environments where their teachers or their instructors that they had just didn't see them as truly great students in that particular context. And so you see when you're looking and reviewing the data that traditionally students of color, they have a higher uh, percentage of individuals that are reported for, uh, you know, conduct violations within the school system. They have a higher percentage of being expelled from the school system. And so even though the individuals, the students are behaving in the same manner as the majority white students are, their consequences are just different. And as a result of that, Many of these learners, these students end up doing things and being caught up in situations that will land them into a, a prison, into the to, to, into the justice system. And so they come into Project AIM, they come into the classroom having this kind of already preconceived ideal that education doesn't work because right. they've tried it. We've told them that if you go to school and if you truly perform and give us your best, that you will have these positive outcomes. And they tried that. And as a result, the outcomes that they were looking for just didn't happen. And so when they enter 
the classroom in the prison, they're coming into that classroom with that experience of education actually failing them. And so we spend a lot of time at the beginning of really building that trust and reestablishing kind of that strong foundation and allowing them the space and the opportunity to truly see themselves as true students that have a potential to truly do great things. And so that's really for us and for my experience and my team, it's really important for us to go in and not to kind of take in this power of being the instructor or power of being the faculty member, but really coming in as allowing the students to truly demonstrate to themselves how great that can be. And that's um, a transition that takes some time because I'm very comfortable based on my experience teaching on campus, teaching in a traditional classroom. And so there's a power dynamic there, right? When I go into the classroom, I immediately go to the front of the class, right? I'm setting up my PowerPoint slides and all eyes are directed towards me as kind of the power instructor, as the leader of that classroom setting. In the carceral space, we take a different approach where we come in and instead of being in the front of the classroom, we physically try to, and if possible, try to structure the classroom so that everyone is at the same level and that there's no identifiable leader taking control of the classroom, right? There's obviously going to be an instructor. So I'm in the prison system. I'm in the classroom, in the prison. I have the responsibility to conduct the learning. And so I'm going to make sure that we're going to achieve and reach the learning outcomes, but the physical structure of how that takes place just looks differently. And so when you're thinking about the academic deficits that they're coming into these prison classrooms, having kind of under their belt, it's not really a deficit that they're coming into the classroom with. It's just a different experience that we have kind of placed them in. And it's our responsibility as, you know, educators in um, prison system to actually go in and just change the physical dynamics of the learning experience. Wow. In a word, wow. Because if I can, if, if you allow me to unpack all of that, I heard some real strong themes. And I think some of these themes we could bring to life as what it sounds like, at least teachable moments or basically tutorials uh, for teachers uh, who are dealing with students. I did read this research out there, to your point, that says that students of color are more likely to receive more uh, heavier or more rigorous punishments than students of non-color for the same offense. So you're talking about all this behavioral dynamic, how they're treated in the school system. And it sounds like that they were given some false hope that they could rest their future or invest in their future based upon education, which ultimately failed them, you know, at those levels there. And you have a complete change in dynamic relative to the teacher's role. So if you were to give advice to a teacher, a new teacher that's embarking on a career in teaching high school for starters, what advice would you give them in this context? I, I really love that question. And I think for me, 
it's really getting into the position where you're able to hear the feedback from the actual learner. And so, for example, to kind of illustrate the point, when we're looking for instructors to go into the prison system to teach, we allow the learners that are incarcerated to actually interview the instructor. Oh. So we invite the instructor to come into the classroom to do a um, kind of brief presentation of who they are, what their area of expertise is, and then provide an opportunity for the incarcerated learners to actually interview the interested faculty member. After the faculty member or the instructor leaves, we will sit down with the learners and basically listen to them and let them tell us what were what what was it about the particular instructor that really resonated with you? Do you feel this instructor is able to come into this carceral space and deliver a quality experience for you? Many times what happens, and especially you see this within the high school situation, is that the authorities or the individuals that are kind of in these power positions will come in and tell the students what is the best way for them to learn. And I believe that we need to kind of switch that narrative and allow the students to tell us the best way for them to learn. And that's a transition that takes time, and particularly in the prison system where obviously you have correctional officers and they have a job to maintain the safety of the facility. And to come in and say that we're giving, you know, power, legitimate power to these incarcerated individuals to take ownership and control of their educational journey and their destiny, that's a change in mind shift, right? We have to really kind of be opened to navigating that space because it's just different. And we know that the outcome of that, allowing these individuals to take on that ownership, to take on that agency and that power, the outcome is that it does lead to them actually leaving the facility upon release, having gained skills that they can actually apply in the workplace. They can actually see themselves as positive members of society because we provided them the opportunity to take on that agency, to take on that power, and they take that with them upon release. And as a result, the recidivism rate for individuals that participate in educational programs, regardless if it's a program in higher education or a vocational trade program, does lead to them actually not returning to prison. You just stole my second question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that was my next question was the impact on recidivism. But just want to circle back quickly for those people who are listening for those key themes that Dr. Matthews has identified, building trust, validating students as legitimate learners and as adult learners taking ownership of their education. And I, I'm absolutely intrigued and interested, and I applaud that vetting process that you apply. I think that's a great way to validate these uh, learners that are incarcerated um, you know, as legitimate thinking and valuable adults who have something to say and have an, 
have a stake in their uh, in their future, which what it sounds like is something that really hasn't happened at all. If it did, it may be piecemeal at best. Right, right, so right. So w- what a home run. This is an incredible model. So back to the recidivism, you're saying you, you, are, you are seeing a reduction or a mitigation of recidivism amongst the learners. Is that correct? Yeah. So with Project AIM in particular, because we are fairly new and we started in a maximum level uh, prison, and so we knew going into the McDougal facility in Connecticut that the majority of our learners would not be coming out of prison anytime soon, right? However, we are now at the point where we are seeing the first um, members of our cohort actually being released. And so we started in 20. Um, 18, 2019's uh, school year with 26 incarcerated learners, and three of our learners have been released. One of them uh, decided that, you know, he started with uh, Project AIM, uh, was very successful. Upon release, he decided that he did not want to continue in higher education, but he was able to take his learning and the badges that he was able to complete and start his own business. And so he's now uh, um, operating and running a smoothie bar, Juice Kings, out of Stanford, Connecticut. Our other two learners that were released are interested in starting and continue their education at SNHU. And so we're working with them now, getting them set up with, you know, their transitional housing. They will be participating in a, um, a summer institute that we're putting on and hosting in Connecticut that's providing them, you know, an entryway into becoming, you know, an official online student at SNHU. And our goal is to really make sure that they have all the wraparound services that they need to be successful students. So we know we're not in the business of providing housing, but we can connect them to those nonprofits and agencies that are in the business of uh, providing housing, employment, transportation, so that they do have access to those things that they need to be successful students. And so we don't have at this point, you know, enough data to truly say that students participating in Project AIM will not go back to prison. However, when you look at the data that has been collected nationally, the data is out there and it's been telling us this for decades that students that participate in any type of educational program that are incarcerated, the recidivism rates are drastically reduced. It even goes as far we actually have data that demonstrates that if a student obtains their master's degree while they're incarcerated, their recidivism rate further decreases. If they obtain their doctorate degree while they're incarcerated, the recidivism rate gets even lower. So the data has been out there for um, for decades to really demonstrate that education provided in the right way and the right format does lead, lead to the outcomes that we're looking for. That's outstanding. Basically, you're rebuilding people and it's not just education. I 
I want to commend you for identifying those pillars of stability is what it sounds like. You know, they need food, they need shelter, they need those things to reduce their stress and keep their attention focused on doing some very positive things like building a business, like a smoothie truck. What comes to mind is like Dave's Bread, which was, right, uh, right. which he sold, I believe he sold that company for like $10 million. So the, the, the success stories do abound. So to your point, it's not just empirical guesswork. It does work. Education is working for these people. But your approach is multifaceted. It's not just learning. It's not just a lesson plan. It's not just going to class or whatever. It's actually deploying these things and giving them an opportunity to be stabilized when they actually are out of the prison and being able to meet those critical needs so they can focus. That's great. That's just great stuff, Doc. That's just amazing. So that leads me to the next one. All right. Um, what's a typical course? Look, What does it look like? Is it traditionally set up? I mean, is it interaction? I mean, how, what's the actual learning and teaching approach uh, for the incarcerated? Yeah, to even answer that question, we have to go back to how the courses are actually uh, designed and created. We believe that it's so vital to have and to intentionally include the voices of incarcerated learners. And so as we design and come up with courses, we start with the learners first. What is it that, because remember, it's all about giving them the power. And we know that, you, you know, a typical, we have our course catalogs. We have, you know, a list of standard courses that we provide for majors and you need 120 credits in order to get your bachelor's degree. We know that. However, we need to be able to empower the incarcerated learners. And so we come up with, we take time and we allow space for the incarcerated learners to tell us, what is it that you want to learn? What do you feel that you are lacking? What are the skills that are going to allow you upon release to be successful? And so that's where we start. And then we take that feedback and then we go to the course catalog and like, okay, what can we take from this catalog of courses that we have available to match the needs of the learners that are incarcerated? It does take a lot more time and planning on the front end. It would definitely be much easier to kind of just go into the prison system and say, hey, you want this degree. These are the courses you need to take to get this degree to obtain it. However, that doesn't give or allow space for the learners to have agency over their own educational pathway. So we found it very beneficial to actually take the time at the beginning to hear the voices of the learners that are incarcerated to allow them the time to tell us what is it that you want to learn. And so once we have that opportunity and they're able to share, they're more motivated when they come into the classroom because they selected the classes and they selected the format. We're still meeting the same learning outcomes that are listed, you know, on the, the syllabus and everything, but we're just doing it in a different way to allow agency for our learners that are incarcerated. And as a result, they are so invested that they even with COVID, when we had to kind of transition to correspondence learning, they were still writing their assignments, right? They were still engaged. Even during COVID, we didn't lose one student. It took us longer because we had to go to the facility, pick up the packets, drop off the packets, right? Mm -hmm. So it did take longer, but their level of engagement remained very high. 
So we can file that effort under the term you described before, which is basically ownership. They're owning their future. They're owning what they need to learn, which can really, in some respects, it sounds like it's already complementing, complementing or augmenting what they have embedded through their life experience. You know, their street smarts, right? I mean, it's one, it's one thing to be book smart. It's another thing to be street smart. And you combine the two, and then you have a, a really strong recipe for success. Un, unequivocally. That's, that's outstanding. Let me ask you this now, Doc. Do you have any of your graduates come back and speak to, the, uh, to these uh, learners? Well, at this point, we haven't had any graduate yet from SNHU, but those that have been released have been engaged in programming and events, both online as well as physically on campus. They are so excited to share their voice, so excited to share what they've been able to learn and gain through SNHU. Um and so, yes, they do come back. They're very involved and they continue to kind of serve as kind of advisors to Project AIM as we grow and explore other opportunities and ways to move the program forward. We still rely on their voices. And it's even for me, it's very kind of um, rewarding to kind of see them take on that ownership and fit, feel like they have a spot, which they do at the table, that their voice matters. Um, and so for me, that has been one of the kind of greatest kind of outcomes for me, both personally and professionally, is to see these le learners upon release, even though they're still facing, you know, many challenges and dealing with the biases from society, their optimism and their motivation and their grit to continue to move forward has been really um, inspiring to see and witness. That's the word I would I would I would use too. It's extraordinary. It's inspirational, uh, and this really is really um, not panacea. The word I'm looking for. This is this is a home run. <laughs> you know, this is you know something that we have at our fingertips. Education across this country as 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 a tool uh, for unequivocal rebound and success it's just and rebuilding someone's life like that it's just absolutely amazing absolutely amazing uh doc have you encountered any resistance from these learners and if you did how did you break it down how did you convince them that hey this is a great tool this is a way up way out from my experience we haven't re encountered resistance from the learners because they recognize the value and they've been able to kind of talk to other incarcerated individuals and tell them, you know, that this is a serious program, that we're all about providing opportunity for those that want it to truly make their lives better. There has been resistance from the staff uh, working with, you know, the DOC can be challenging. You have wartons at each of the facilities that we have to work with. And in those instances, we found that the best way to kind of break down that resistance from the staff is just to demonstrate to them the impact that education has had. And so with the McDougal facility, we were able to kind of document how the number of violent incidences that were occurring was actually decreasing because these learners were involved in educational programming. Uh, and as a result, the correctional officers came to us and were like, hey, can you create an educational pathway 
for us. And so that was a huge win in a, uh, actually starting that pathway for the correctional officers. It was completely voluntary. There was an interview process that uh, correctional officers had to interview. They started officially as SNHU online students after they completed the same 10 badges that the incarcerated learners did. They started um, in October of this past year. And they, after this term, they will be officially juniors at SNHU. And again, we will be providing them with the summer intensive program next month in Connecticut, where they'll be able to complete two additional badges. And they are on track to actually graduate within the next year. So a huge accomplishment mm. in being able to break down that resistance by just creating another educational opportunity for specifically correctional officers. Outstanding. I just can't think of enough superlatives of it. This is absolutely great work you're doing, Doc. So for the last question I have for you, because this is going on in other parts of the country, et cetera, as well, at least either this type of effort or whatnot. So if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, Doc, I live in X state, wherever it is, and I'm in a position to be able to do something like this, you know, what, what advice can you give me? How do I get this going? You know, how do I navigate? How do, how, do I, how do I be successful like you are? The first step is really providing the space for the incarcerated learners to tell you what they're looking for. So that would be my first recommendation is to really go into the prison and have a conversation with the learners. And don't just assume that because you have access to the resources to create and to design an educational pathway, that is the educational pathway that those learners will want. Um, it's really important that from the very, very beginning that you create the pathway that is wanted by the incarcerated individuals. After you are able to build the relationship with the learners, then try to navigate and figure out how to build those and improve the relationships with the staff, whether it's the warden, um, the correctional officers that you have to you know, work with every time you go into the prison system. What is it that you can provide the staff to let them see and to demonstrate that it's truly a partnership um, and that everyone will benefit. And then the third step is to reach out and to have some type of conversation with other educational institutions in your community that may be interested or may have even started similar programs so that you're not coming in duplicating resources and duplicating efforts, but you're coming in and truly filling in the gaps and demonstrating that your program actually connects directly to what the incarcerated learners is are, are looking for. So the first step, connect with the learners that are in prison, have a conversation. Second step, develop and grow the relationship with the staff that are working at the DOC, including the warden. And then the third step is to build those community partnerships outside the prison system so that upon release, you're able to connect the learners with housing, transportation, and employment. Exceptional. Absolutely exceptional. Doc, have you 
have you written about this? Um, do you have a book in the works by any chance about the success? Good question. <laughs> Actually, uh, I am working on a chapter. It was going to be uh, coming out next year in Bloomsbury. Um, and it's an international book that is looking at how, from an international vantage point, how uh, these educational pathways are leading to reducing recidivism and actually providing opportunities for incarcerated individuals. So the chapter that uh, I'm working on, along with my graduate assistant, Adiola, will explore how um, badging and micro-credentials can be used in uh, prison systems to actually, at the kind of foundation ground level, to provide incarcerated learners with the skills that they have told us that they want. And that chapter will be included in that book that was coming out in 2023. Please let us know when that's ready to go, because I want to see that and read it and we want to get it out there. So Project AIM, for those who have tuned to this podcast, can how can anyone either get in touch with you or support the project you're doing? Uh, what, what What's the recourse? Yeah, there's lots of opportunity. Um, the best way to contact us is to email Project AIM, all one word, at snhu.edu. We have monthly meetings for community members to be involved. We're also building and putting together the New, uh, New Hampshire Higher Ed in Prison Work Group. That group meets on the third Tuesday of every month. And it's basically just a think tank for all individuals in the state of New Hampshire at this time to come together and just share how, how we can support each other. And so there's a lot of opportunity to come in, to be involved, to volunteer, to provide insight, and to have your voice be part of the conversation. So project aim at snhu.edu. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Matthews. I can't thank you enough. And we really need to do this again. We need to keep making noise about the great things that are happening here at Southern New Hampshire University. This is just one great example of the work that's being done through the university and with the in the capable hands of Dr. Matthews. Once again, thank you, Doc. I really appreciate your time and your illustrating what you're doing and for this great teachable moment for many people who are interested in this and interested in participating or Replicating, getting involved in supporting the great work that you and your team are doing. So once again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And we will talk again. Thank you Perfect. so much, Doc. I love it. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now. <laughs>